0: I hope you uh, picked up a, a copy of the uh, sermon notes as you uh, came in today. Again, if you came in late, let me uh, emphasize one more time that tonight, 6 o'clock, right here in the sanctuary, uh, Edgewood Baptist Church Music Ministry will present uh, Christmas Miracles, a wonderful uh, music-slash-drama And that will also be repeated next Sunday morning in this service, in the 10.30 service. So you have two opportunities, either tonight or uh, 10.30 next week. And uh, you might even want to come tonight and, of course, come back uh, next week to see it again. I trust God will uh, bless us through it. And uh, we've been looking forward to this for some time. Uh, Today, uh, we not only conclude the message I began last Sunday on the Apostle Peter, entitled, The Fiery Trial and How to Endure It, or if you prefer, Learning to Shine, uh, Not Wine. Uh, But we also conclude today the sermon series, Blessed Are the Persecuted. Now in this sermon series, we have been looking at various uh, Bible characters who suffered persecution for their faith uh, in God to learn not only how to respond to persecution in a godly, Christ-like manner, but also to discover how God uses persecution to advance the spiritual growth of his child and to advance his kingdom. Now, Peter is a great person to conclude uh, the series with because there is so much we can learn from Peter about persecution, as we saw last Sunday. Uh, Peter went from his colossal failure of denying Christ to remaining faithful to Christ in persecution, even to the point of death when he was crucified upside down as he laid down his life as a martyr for the Lord Jesus. Now, Peter's testimony teaches us that with God there is always hope beyond failure, and that there is never any adversity that we will ever encounter in life where God's grace will not be sufficient as we trust Him, as we lean on Him. But even greater than the lessons we can learn from Peter's testimony are the lessons that we learn from his teaching, and especially in 1 Peter. When Peter wrote the book, Nero was the Roman emperor with hostility towards Christians rapidly escalating in the Roman Empire. Uh, Peter understood very well that right around the corner was coming severe persecution. Not just ridicule, not just scorn and slander, but he understood that there was quickly coming a day when Christians would suffer the seizure of their wealth and properties. They would suffer imprisonment and even the penalty of death. So Peter wrote the book to prepare the church for this severe persecution that was on the horizon. And last Sunday, we began to look at 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 12 through 19, which is the heart of Peter's teaching on persecution. And in these verses, Peter drives home four truths. Uh, we had the opportunity to look at the first one last Sunday, so... Let me just quickly review, and then we'll move forward. First thing that Peter says is, as believers, we are to expect suffering. We are to expect suffering. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 12 reads, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you, which comes upon you for your testing, as though some strange thing were happening to you. We saw last Sunday there are two inescapable realities every Christian must face. One, I live in a fallen world. Romans 8.20, for the creation was subjected to futility. So even creation itself as a result of the fall of man is out of whack we suffer natural disasters we suffer disease we suffer the aging process that is a reality every believer has to face and not a single believer is immune from natural disasters or disease or the aging process but in those things we can of course know god's grace and the second reality is i live in a world that crucified my lord john 15:20 he said, if they persecuted me, they will also what? They'll persecute you. So in light of these two inescapable realities, Peter says, do not be surprised. Don't be surprised by suffering. Don't be surprised by adversity, by the fiery ordeal among you, as though some strange thing were happening to you. We saw last uh, Sunday that the fourth chapter, uh, the way it opens really sets the entire tone For what Peter is teaching in this fourth chapter when he said, Therefore, since Christ has suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same purpose. The phrase, arm yourselves, is the word "hablitzo" in the Greek text. And again, we looked at this last week. This is simply a very brief review. And we saw that the word was used of a Greek soldier putting on his armor and taking up his weapons to go into battle against the enemy. So Peter is saying when persecution comes, it's not time for believers to retreat, but with the resolve of a soldier, you are to arm yourself with the same purpose for which Jesus lived, suffered, and died. And we know what that purpose was for, to rescue lost men, women, boys, and girls for his father. No matter how difficult things may become, Peter is saying, we are never to compromise the completion of the mission that God has given us, which is to live and share the gospel of Jesus Christ, which is what the Lottie Moon Christmas offering is all about, reaching a lost world for the Lord Jesus Christ. So like a soldier going into battle... We are to expect hardship. And we're not only to expect hardship in following Christ, but we also need to realize there is literally the possibility of laying down your life for the cause of Christ. And again, Jesus was always so honest in calling followers to himself. He said, you must deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me. He made it very, very clear that you're not worthy of Him unless you are willing to surrender your life even to the point to death in honoring Him, obeying Him, loving Him, serving Him. And then the second truth that we see here in 1 Peter 4, and we just began to touch on this in the conclusion of our message, was that we are to exalt or rejoice in suffering. We're not only to expect suffering... But then he says, hey, when it does come, don't throw a pity party, don't whine, shine, rejoice, celebrate. And in verses 12, 13, and 14, Peter gives five incentives why believers should rejoice in the midst of suffering, adversity, and even persecution. And we only had time last week to cover the very first incentive, so again, I'll just quickly review Uh, And this is a brief review, again you could go to the church website and always look at any messages that you may have missed, but the first reason he says we are to exalt or rejoice in suffering is that suffering is God's refining fire, to test my faith and purify my life. In 1 Peter 4, 12, Peter speaks of the fiery ordeal which comes upon you for your testing. We saw last Sunday that fiery ordeal, that that phrase, that word in the Greek text literally was used to refer to a fiery furnace that was used to melt metals in order to purge it of all impurities. When metal is subjected to intense heat, the impurities rise to the top and they are easily removed. And the same is true in our lives. When the heat is turned up on us through some fiery ordeal, our impurities rise to the top and are exposed. Our lack of faith, our unbelief, our anxieties, our our, our fears, our selfishness, or whatever it might be. Uh, Brother David, uh, the previous senior pastor here at Edgewood, he had a a favorite saying he he would often repeat. And that is, when you're squeezed by life's trials, what's the rest of it? Yeah, what's on the inside is going to come out. Uh, It's not that you are to blame those difficult circumstances uh, for getting you in that mood or that nasty disposition or whatever it might be. No, it's just exposing the impurities in your life. But beloved, that's not a bad thing. See, this gives us an opportunity, as those impurities are exposed, to turn to God, to know His cleansing, to know His renewing and His reviving work. Uh, We looked at Malachi chapter 3, verses 2 and 3 last week. For He, God, is like a refiner's fire and he will sit as a smelter and purifier of silver and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver so that they may present to the Lord offerings in righteousness and we saw how Peter must have been thinking of these verses in Malachi when he wrote 1 Peter chapter 1 verses 6 and 7 he says in this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials. Why? That the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. In Bible days, the metalsmith, Knew he had pure gold when he could see his face reflected in the surface of that melted metal. And God's purpose in your fire ordeal is not to destroy you. There is no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. The purpose of the fiery ordeal, yes, is to uh, rid you of the sin, rid you of the impurities, of the dross, of all that is worthless. So that God can see his face reflected in and through your life. Because he's committed to reaching a lost world for Jesus. And he does that through forming Christ's life in us to be displayed through us to others. And now look with me. From this point on, this is all new material. That was all review. Now we move into the new material. Look at the second incentive that he gives for rejoicing and suffering. Suffering draws me closer to Christ. Suffering draws me closer to Christ. The 13th verse, but to the degree that you notice, share, you fellowship in the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing. Reality is, here's reality, and we all know this as believers, if you have walked with God for any length of time at all, You are never closer to Christ than when suffering reduces you to weakness. Because it's in your weakness that you discover God's what? Strength. See, God uses that fire ordeal. He uses that suffering. He uses the persecution to open my eyes, to open my heart, to my utter and absolute dependence upon him. And when I see that I'm absolutely dependent upon Him, that He is my only hope, that creates in me what? A desperation for God. And that desperation results in a determination to stay close to God, to follow God, knowing that He has the way out. He'll take me through the trial and accomplish his plans and purposes in me. You know, I, again, I told you from the beginning of this series, look for the common denominators in these various characters that we're looking at. And folks, this is one that you just can't miss. I mean, every single character. We saw God orchestrated tremendous suffering, trial, and adverse. God orchestrated. Again, not to destroy these individuals, but to take them closer with him. God put Joseph in a dark prison for many, many, many years that in that darkness he was forced to lean on God. He took David to that point of despair and desperation where he crawled in a bro- that cave of Adullam, just a broken man. And it was there in that cave, deserted, alone with God, that he developed an intimacy with God that he never knew before, where God used that to refine him and prepare him to be the leader of men and the king of his people. Remember, it was Jeremiah, five decades of ministry, where he saw no fruit, where he was persecuted, ridiculed, scorned all those years, in prison, beaten. And we saw how he struggled with that, that although in the eyes of the public he never faltered once, he was like this bold lion, but you get this man alone with God, and he struggled. He even challenged God at times. You know, why have you deceived me? You know, why are you hurting me like this? Why is my pain perpetual? Why am I not seeing any, any results? But as God stripped Jeremiah of all the crutches he could have possibly leaned on to, It was in those times that he learned to lean on God. And we saw that although he struggled at times with disappointment and discouragement and despair, ultimately all that took him into an intimacy with God that few people on planet earth have ever known. As he plunged into the very heart of God. And then there was Daniel as a teenage boy ripped away from his family, ripped away from his nation, his culture, his language, everything that he knew, put into Babylon, a foreign country that despised his God, that worshipped idols. And there alone, isolated with his three friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, David with his friends learned to put their trust In God, in a very hostile culture towards their faith, they learned to stand strong and to shine, even when it meant being put into a fiery furnace, even when it meant being put in the lion's den. They learned to trust God. And then, of course, Nehemiah. Oh, Nehemiah. God gave him favor. God granted him success. But he did it what? Through opposition. Opposition. The moment Nehemiah began his work for God, the work that God had called him to do, we saw how on every side opposition arose that attempted to intimidate him, to stop the work. And he had to face that opposition. And we saw what was his primary response. He turned to God. He turned to God. Twelve different prayers in the book of Nehemiah. Every time the opposite, remember we talked about he didn't take much time trying to speak to his critics, defend himself. No, he just turned to God and said, God, you give me a work to do. I'm going to, give, I'm going to trust you to give me the grace and this people the grace to continue to go forward, and I'm going to let you handle our opposition. I'm going to let you handle our enemies as you give us wisdom, guidance, and direction. You know, another great example of this, and we've referred to this in... Uh, in this study previously but do take your bibles and turn to 2 corinthians 12 i want to emphasize it one more time 2nd corinthians 12 and this is paul's thorn in the flesh good great example of how god uses suffering to draw us closer to god to bring us into an intimacy with god that we would have never known apart from the suffering look at um look at verse 7 And because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, for this reason, to keep me from exalting myself, there was given me a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan, to buffet me, to keep me from exalting myself. Now just pause right there. The word used for thorn doesn't refer just to a little splinter that might get in your finger. It refers to a large, sharp stake that was used to impale a person. To kill a person. The word buffet means to beat. It means to strike with the fist. And the tense of the verb indicates that the pain was either constant for Paul or at least recurring just on a regular basis. So Paul says, you know, God gave me this thorn to, to, to buffet me and also don't miss. This isn't my main point, but it's an important one to stress. Why did God give him the thorn? To keep him from what? To keep him from exalting himself. To keep him from pride. My point being, listen now. God knows your vulnerabilities. He knows mine. And sometimes God uses suffering and adversity as a preemptive strike. You know what I mean? He realizes that if he were not To orchestrate this difficulty in our lives, we would run forward in pride. We would run forward in presumption, in selfishness, or whatever it might be. So God used this thorn to keep Paul from pride. But on the other hand, of course, what to humble him under the mighty hand of God, to bring him into an intimacy with God that he never knew before. And we see that here. Notice verse eight concerning this. I entreated, Lord. It was so bad. that it it might depart from me. You know, I've shared with you in the past, uh, you may not agree with my position, and and, and that's fine. No one really knows what the thorn is. It is my conviction that he is referring to persecution. That was the thorn. I think you see that in the context. Uh, I think uh, when you look at Paul's life, he had uh, these Judaizers, these false teachers that literally followed him everywhere. No matter where he went, they were there to stir up strife, to stir up persecution, to hurt him, to take him out. And if it wasn't for God's protective covering, although he suffered greatly, and we'll see that in a moment, yet God protected Paul. Paul was indestructible until his work was finished on earth that God had given him to do. And that's true of every believer, as we trust God and we follow him. And then notice God's response. He says, and he said to me, Paul, my grace is sufficient for you. In other words, Paul, I'm not going to take away the thorn. I want you to look to my grace in the thorn. For my power is perfected, what? In weakness. Your weakness provides my greatest opportunity to bring you close to me to know my power being released through you. And then notice now Paul's attitude totally changes. Most gladly, therefore, gladly, again, there's that theme of rejoicing. I will rather boast about my weaknesses that the power of Christ may dwell in me. Therefore, I am well content with weaknesses, with insults, with distresses, with persecutions, with difficulties for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. And just so you understand, those were not just words. It was Paul's life. Turn over to the 11th chapter of 2 Corinthians where Paul gives us a, a, a list of the things that he's talking about. Look at verse 23. Are they servants of Christ? This is 2 Corinthians 11 verse 23. He's comparing himself here to false prophets. But where, and he highlights the suffering that he's encountered in following Jesus. And then he, he goes on and he says, uh, uh, in far more labors... In far more, notice, imprisonment, and, and Paul literally spent multiple years of his ministry in prison. He says, beaten times without number. I've been beaten so many times, I've lost count. Often in danger of death. Five times I received from the Jews 39 lashes. That is the scourging that Jesus received. Considered the second death. He says, five times I've encountered that. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked, a night and day I have spent in the deep. I have been on frequent journeys in dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my countrymen, dangers from the Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, dangers on the sea, dangers among false brethren. I have been in labor and hardship through many sleepless nights, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure, apart from such external things. There's the daily pressure upon me of concern for all the churches. Who is weak without me being weak? Who is led into sin without my intense concern? If I have to boast, I will boast of what pertains to my what? Weakness. See, Paul came to the place to understand that God uses thorns. He uses suffering. He uses persecution to drive us closer to God, to develop a deeper intimacy with the Lord. Do you remember the words to the song uh, years ago, uh, Through It All? This ages me for certain. If I'd never had a problem, I'd never know that he could solve them. I'd never know what faith in God could do. And in reality... In your experience, God is only as big as really the greatest adversity that he's brought you through. Of course, our perspective does not change the size or the power of greatness of God, but I'm just saying that often we have a very limited view of God, and that's why God uses adversity to take us into the depths of his love, the depths of his power to develop that intimacy. Look at the third reason we're to rejoice Suffering in this life produces glory in the next. Suffering in this life produces glory in the next. And we've emphasized this throughout this series. We've seen this in all those Bible characters. That this life is just boot camp, preparing us for the next. It's in this life that we have the opportunity to build up for ourselves eternal treasures. And one of our great problems is... We, so few of us have an eternal value system. We live for the temporal. We live for the gratifications of this world instead of heavenly reward, instead of keeping our eyes on the prize. Verse 13, the latter part of that verse, so that also at the revelation of his glory you may rejoice with exaltation. So suffering, again, not only draws me closer to Jesus, it produces reward for me. Did, did you know... That there is literally going to be an award ceremony in heaven with Jesus giving out the awards. Uh, the awards are called, of course, crowns. And did you know there will be a unique crown given just to those who have faithfully preserved, uh, persevered in their suffering? James 1.12, blessed is the man. Happy is the man who perseveres under trial. Why? For once he has been approved. He will receive the crown of life which the Lord has promised to those who love him. 2 Timothy chapter 4 verses 7 and 8 Paul wrote, I have fought the good fight. This is right before his execution. Paul was beheaded for his faith in Christ. When he wrote this, he's in prison. If you're familiar with the story, every single person virtually that he loved had deserted him. And he's there in prison, and this is what he writes. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the course. I have kept the faith. In the future there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only me, but also to all who love his appearance. Notice Paul alludes to a soldier in battle and an athlete in a race. Does a soldier grow weary in battle? Yes. Does he experience fear? Yes. Is he often left with scars and wounds which are incurred in the battle, which are painful? Yes. Are there times he feels like quitting? Yes. Does an athlete become exhausted in the race? Of course they do. Do they often feel tempted to quit because of the pain? Yes. See, life is a fierce battle, Paul says. It's a grueling race. We each have a course that God has laid out for us. And as we draw close to Him, only then do we find the grace to remain faithful to Him every step of that race. Faithful to Him all the way across the finish line. To hear those words, well done, thou good and faithful servant. Enter now the joy of your Lord. But we become here on earth, we become exhausted, we become perplexed. We often fall down under the weight of our pain. But God encourages us to keep on fighting, keep on running, knowing our reward in heaven is great. And that's why Paul said in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, he says, yes, yes, yes. We're afflicted in every way, but we're not crushed. And yes, we're often perplexed, but not to the point of despair. And yes, I'm persecuted, but I'm never forsaken. And yes, I may get often knocked down in life's contest, but I'm never knocked out. And then he goes on, I'm always caring about in my body the death of Jesus, that the life of Christ might be expressed to a lost world. Do you hear what he's saying? He says, God is using the adversity. He's using it to draw me close to him, to fill me, to fill this frail clay pot with his light, with his love, with his life. And then God uses adversity, he uses suffering to break this frail clay pot, to release that light, to release that life, that love Upon a lost world for the honor and glory of Jesus Christ. But it doesn't stop there. It doesn't stop there. He goes on in that same verse. He says, therefore, here's the conclusion to it. Therefore, in light of all that, we do not lose heart. But though our outer man is decaying, suffering pain, perplexity, whatever it may be. Yet our inner man is being renewed day by day. Why? Because, verse 17, 4, because momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. Notice the suffering is producing that glory as it drives us close to Christ to know His grace to release His life upon a lost world. And then he says what? While we look not on things which are seen, but those things which are unseen. While we look not on those things which are temporal, but those things which are eternal. And then he goes on into 2 Corinthians chapter 5, highlighting this wonderful eternal home that we have in heaven. Truly, it will be worth it all when we see Jesus. Amen, Jeremy? It will be worth it. It all when we see Jesus. Next reason why we should rejoice: suffering is a means. Jesus uh, it, suffering means Jesus being seen in my life. Suffering means Jesus being seen in my life. First Peter four verse fourteen: If you are reviled for the name of Christ, circle that word "revile." The word literally means to be denounced. It means to uh, have people heap insults upon you. And of course, this is referring to persecution. But notice the cause for which you are being reviled. Reviled for the name of Christ. If persecution and suffering and adversity comes because Christ can be seen in my life, Peter saying that is a reason for rejoicing. In Acts chapter 5, Peter and the Apostles, they are flogged, they are beaten for and ordered, ordered to stop preaching Jesus. And while Peter and the Apostles, while they are still bleeding, they're still hurting from the beating. Listen to their response in verses 41 and 42 of Acts 5. So they went out on their way from the presence of the council, rejoicing. They're bleeding. They're hurting, but in the midst of that, they're rejoicing. Why? That they had been considered worthy to suffer shame for his name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they kept right on teaching and preaching that Jesus is the Christ. There's that soldier mentality. They had been given a mission, the Great Commission, to go into the world to preach the gospel. So they didn't let the persecution cause them to retreat. But with that soldier's attitude, they went forward to advance the gospel despite the opposition, despite the persecution, despite the difficulty. Let me add, let me add, even if your suffering is not the direct result of persecution, say it's an illness uh, or a relational problem that you're in right now, or some kind of serious setback, you have the opportunity to use your suffering to display to others Christ's grace that sustains you and his love that will never fail you. You have the opportunity to demonstrate that Jesus truly is enough. And although I may be stripped of everything because Jesus cannot be taken from me, You cannot destroy my joy, my rejoicing. Look at the next incentive. Suffering takes me deeper into the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Again, the latter part of verse 14. You are blessed because the Spirit of glory of God rests upon you. Circle the word rest. The word means to give relief. It means to give refreshment. It means intermission from toil in times of suffering. In times where, Now, he's not going to give it until you get there. It's very difficult for us to understand. But God says, if you're reviled for my name, if you're persecuted in the cause of Christ, you can be guaranteed that the Spirit of glory and, the, and of God will rest upon you. He promises that in a very special, unique way the Holy Spirit will sustain you. And what does he sustain you with? The fruit of the Spirit. Galatians chapter 5, and there are nine fruits of the Spirit, right? So what does the Holy Spirit do? He gives you a love to overcome the hate that's being perpetrated against you. He gives you a joy to carry you through the trouble. He gives you a peace to ride out the storm, a patience to deal with the irritants, Kindness to enable you to forgive those who persecute you. Goodness to overcome evil. Faithfulness to keep you true. Gentleness to keep you tender in the midst of the hurt and pain. And self-control just to keep your sanity. So we exult in suffering. We rejoice in suffering. Why? Because suffering is God's refining fire. It takes me closer to Christ. It produces glory in the next life. It means Jesus can be seen in my life, and it takes me deeper into the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Now very quickly, let's look at these next uh, points as we bring this to a close. It is important, Peter says, for you to evaluate your suffering. And I would suggest you need to ask three questions. And The first question is, why am I suffering? Why am I suffering? First Peter 415 says, "By no means, by no means let any of you suffer as a murderer, or thief, or evildoer, or troublesome meddler. You know, which says if you're going to suffer, suffer for following me, not following after sin and selfishness. And notice there are three kinds of suffering. First, there's what I would call common suffering, like we stated earlier, because I live in a fallen world. I'm going to confront disease. I'm going to confront disasters. I'm going to confront tragedy. I'm going to confront heartache. The aging. There's so many things I'm going to confront just because I live in a fallen world. And again, God in his sovereignty has not decided that he would make Christians immune from all of that. That we suffer those things just like unbelievers to provide us the opportunity to put Christ on display in the midst of it all. And then there's carnal, what I would call carnal suffering because I sin. Sometimes I'm suffering because God is spanking my butt. Because I've turned from him. I'm going my own ways, taking me to the woodshed. And it is painful. But the purpose for it is what? To bring me back to him. And then there's the third, Christian suffering. Because I'm following Christ. The second question you need to ask, am I ashamed of glorifying Christ? You know, if you're suffering persecution for Christ, if you're being reviled, denounced, slandered, am I ashamed of glorifying Christ? 1 Peter 4:16. But if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not feel ashamed. But that in that name let him glorify God. Now you're gonna know shame. It's embarrassed when you get hurt. It's it's embarrassing. It's shameful when you get denounced. Jesus, the Bible tells us, he experienced shame, but he looked beyond the shame to the joy that was set before him, that heavenly reward, and that God would transform his suffering to be a fountain of life, to bring millions to the footstool of God, to worship him, to honor him, to glorify him. And then the third question I think is very important to ask, am I seeking to win the lost in all of this? 1 Peter 4, 18. And if it is with difficulty that the righteous is saved, what will become of the godless man and sinner? Look at that next statement in your notes. There is no comparison between the fiery trial Christians suffer now and the fiery hell the unrighteous suffer later. And again, this is why something like the Lottie Moon Christmas offering for international missions is so important. Over 2 billion people with no access or very little access to the gospel of Jesus Christ. We have been commissioned to take the gospel to them. And we take that by going ourselves where God sends us, by praying and by giving to support those who are in those remote places to bring the gospel of Jesus to them. And then look at the fourth truth that he emphasizes and forgive me for having to hurry through these latter points but uh, they are precious I'm to entrust my suffering to God I'm to entrust my suffering to God first Peter 4:19. therefore let those also who suffer According to the will of God, following Jesus, entrust, circle that word in trust. entrust their souls to a faithful creator in doing what is right. That word entrust is the identical same word that Jesus spoke when he gave up his spirit in death for your sin and my sin. He says, Father, into thy hands, what? I commit my spirit or I entrust my spirit. In in the Greek language, this was a banking term. And it meant to deposit for safe keeping. Well, what was the result of Jesus entrusting, committing his life to his father in his suffering? Even though it was to the point of death. What was the result? Resurrection. And again, a fountain of eternal life to humanity. To mankind. And what God did for Jesus. He will do for you. He will use your suffering. Although it may appear. That it's nothing more than death. He'll bring life out of that. He'll bring you into the power of his resurrection. To put him on display. And then let me just close. With this great quote. J. Sidlow Baxter is one of my favorite Bible teachers. Uh, And this is one of my favorite quotes. By Baxter that I often returned to in my own life. Listen to what he wrote. What mental relief and repose it engenders to know that back of human suffering and back of the vast universe in which our planet is an almost imperceivable speck, there is a faithful creator. This prodigious universe can be frightening. Amen? It can be frightening if we view it apart from such some such guarantee as that. But when we are assured that its infinite architect is the faithful creator, then the frightening becomes friendly. Every dark cloud has a silver lining and every thunderstorm has a rainbow arcing it. Every mystery holds a hidden benediction and every permitted teardrop glistens with a gracious new meaning. A streak of powerful light strikes even across the monster problem of sin, suffering and death, so that we sense a divine fidelity even beneath that. Amen? Amen. Amen. As we close the service, as we enter a time of invitation, uh, I trust you've been challenged in the message today. And as I've always encouraged you, uh, uh, hearing a message never changes the first person. It's responding to God and His Word. Showing Him reverence by being attentive to His Word, by appreciating it, receiving it, appropriating it. So I simply ask, where did God speak to you today? I, pl- I trust He did. I trust He challenged you. He put His finger on some area. It may be to bring you out of a superficial walk with God, to really become surrendered, where he is your first love, greatest passion and pursuit, and where you would be willing to follow him with an uncompromising faith, regardless the price, countering suffering for him, a privilege and honor. So you respond, you be obedient. Now, I'll be standing here to receive anyone uh, that would desire to unite with the church family. We ask if uh, you desire to be a part of the Edgewood family, that the first step would be to make your way down the aisle. Share that intent with me to give me an opportunity to uh, introduce you to the church family so that we begin to love on you, pray for you, express our appreciation for you, and then we'll take you through that full process uh, to church membership. Uh, possibly you're here and you did not know Christ coming into this service, and you've heard about our glorious Lord and his love for you. He did die for you, and you desire to lay down your life for him as you put your trust in him for what he did for you through His death on Calvary's cross. And we would invite you to come to acknowledge, yes, I receive Jesus. Yes, I profess Him. Yes, I desire to follow Him. So you stand as the invitation is extended, and I trust every single one of us will be responding in our hearts to the truth that we've heard today. Don't feel like you have to sing. You'll be responding to God in the backdrop of the music.